On episode 205 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to develop biomechanically efficient and effective technique with world-renowned sports science expert, Dr. Mark Kovacs. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing really well and staying safe, and I hope you've been playing a lot of tennis as well. Fortunately, I've been able to play. I've got my uh, league matches on Thursdays, and then a really fun Friday night uh, young professional uh, tennis social, so that's been really great. Uh, I've been playing with some high-level players and having some good food and uh, drinks. I won't specify what kind, but you probably get the idea. <laughs> Not too much, though, of course. But on this episode of the podcast, I am bringing back Dr. Mark Kovacs. He's a fan favorite. He's just so intelligent and smart and has so much experience working with amazing athletes, especially Tennis players like John Isner, Sloane Stevens, Sam Querrey, and others. And he's also the Senior Director of Sports Science for the Cleveland Cavaliers, which is amazing because it really shows you know, how good Mark is that uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers decided to bring him on their team. Uh, it's a totally different sport. Well, there's similarities between tennis and basketball, but we won't get into that right now. Um, but what we will get into is this... Uh, Q&A, where you're going to learn a lot of great things uh, from Mark, including the biggest technical mistakes that you need to correct, optimal two-handed backhand technique, visual cues for using your kinetic chain, how to transfer your weight on the serve for maximum power, the critical role of your back leg, uh, exercises that most players may want to avoid, and much more. So a lot of these questions that I asked were directly from the audience. So that was really fun and we received a lot of great questions. So with that, I will cut my intro and lead you to the episode with Dr. Mark Kovacs. Enjoy. What is the biggest, you know, technical issue that you find um, on uh, players, uh, you know, just generally speaking in terms of their technique and, and issues related to that? So depending, it's a great question, what are the biggest technical issues? It, it varies a lot between a highly competitive player who trains a lot of hours per week uh, and plays a lot of tournaments versus a recreational club player who may play competitively once a week and maybe one or two times a week they may hit tennis balls uh, in certain ways. So the differences are quite large and we see that also in injury positions and injury rates and types of injuries and it's quite different between a highly competitive player that trains a lot versus uh, a player that really just uh, plays um, you know matches on the weekends let's say and then maybe hits hits tennis balls one or two hours a week so we have to separate those out but the biggest thing from a club player standpoint is usually having the incorrect swing paths from a technical standpoint Uh, this many times is due to poor grips so if your grip, you know, you're, I use a saying a lot, the grip dictates the swing path, the, the swing path dictates the contact point. So if you don't have the grip correct, your swing path will adjust to compensate for that and then your contact point is going to be different again. So most people look at contact and say, hey, I want you to hit the ball out in front more or have a better contact position, more consistent, something like that. But if they don't address the grip and the swing path, just telling them to hit the ball earlier or make contact out in front or something like that is never going to fix the problem by itself. So triple adjustments, find the cause, don't just treat the symptom. So that would be probably the biggest one is making sure the grip and the swing path is consistent and is repeatable. doesn't mean it has to be the same for every person. Just because Roger Federer has a certain swing path doesn't mean that I need to hit the ball the same way. You don't understand the 
physiology and biomechanics of some of the pros and what allows them to hit those shots based on their body mechanics, their levers, their training. So you shouldn't always mimic the pros when we're talking about technical adjustments for club players. So hopefully that helps. Uh, the serve also as a general stroke is one that uh, is, is the most difficult for most people because we've got two major components. We've got a ball release and then a ball moving in space that we have to then catch up to and make contact with. And from a perspective of technical adjustments, too many people focus on the wrong areas, especially on the serve. But just like the ground strokes and the volleys, you can't fix the serve at contact. You have to fix it earlier in the motion. Yeah, thanks for that, uh, Mark. Appreciate it. So we've got a question from Jamie. Hello to you. Uh, I'm a 2.5 female player who has worked hard to earn all, uh, to learn all the correct grips, but I'm generally appalled at, <laughs> at all the women around my club with incorrect grips. So I guess this is more of a comment, but um, yeah, any uh, general thoughts around just grips? Yeah, for sure. No, no, we have this discussion a lot and there's two ways to approach tennis development. One is how good do you want to be and how much work do you want to put into it? You have to ask yourself those two questions. If you say, I want to be the best I can possibly be and I'm willing to put in a lot of work to make adjustments, then we can work with you and teach you the most complete game possible with the most technically sound grips, swing paths and contact points. But if you haven't learned the right way and you've played the wrong way for so long and you want to make those adjustments, it is going to take a little bit of extra time and learning. Then there are the majority of people that may not, one, know that they've got the wrong grips, may not realize they're doing it wrong, they've never been told there's a better way, or they have been told and they don't have the time, interest, uh, or desire to make those adjustments. So we always talk about we can either you know, create ideal technique for you, but it's going to take some work both on a technical stroke development side, but also potentially on a physical side, because there may be reasons why you have certain grips and swing paths because of physical limitations. So we always want to make sure we understand that. And then the second piece is, do you actually, are you willing to put in the work? If you're not, we can then do what we call workarounds, where we say, we're going to have the wrong grip that means that we're only going to hit certain types of shots because you can't hit every shot if you've got the wrong grips. We're going to hit certain spins with that grip that if you had another grip, you could potentially hit more spins uh, in certain ways. Uh, and your margin of error is has to be um, you know, broader because you don't have as much control because you have the wrong grips. And those are the ways we work around poor grips. So it's not necessarily wrong that someone isn't willing to make those adjustments. It just limits their upside. And that's why when you look at most club players, vast majority of them never really change their level. They play at a certain level and five years later, they're still playing at the same level. That's because they're not willing to make those adjustments. Then you have that 10 to 20% group that is willing to make the adjustments. They're getting good coaching. They're searching out quality information and they're putting the time in to train those things the right way. Those are the ones that make really big gains. As a 2-5 player, as you mentioned, you've got great opportunity uh, to move up to 3-0, 3-5, just with some, some, the right type of training, especially if you've got the right grips now, because that's the hardest part sometimes. Once you get the right grips, then it's just work on the swing paths, work on your contact points, and then it's about strategy and are you playing the right way. Beautiful. Appreciate that, Mark. That's a lot of great stuff there. Um, so we got a, a question from Tom, you know, very classic one. What is the optimal technique, Mark, for a two-handed backhand biomechanically? Okay, so the optimal technique for a two-handed backhand varies depending on the grip. And two-handed backhands, you have two grips per grip. You have that. You know, the the left hand and the right hand, depending if you're uh, left or right-handed. So there's multiple ways. There's strong hand, top hand, uh, weak on the bottom or vice versa, or neutral on both. And again, we don't really have time to get into all the details about the grip varieties, but there's easily six different grips that you can hit with a two-handed backhand, sometimes more than six. But in general, there are six broad grips that you can use on a two-handed backhand. Um, so you have to understand that if you get that many grip options, you can't use the same technique for all two-handed backhands. That's why we see 
straight arm backhands. So when I say straight arm, if you're a right-hander, you know, that would be the right hand would be straight when you take it back. Um, so you, you don't have any bend in your elbow. And then you have a lot of players that take it back with a slight bend in the right hand. That's all grip dependent. Certain grips require you to have more of a bent elbow. For In general, if I was going to simplify it, for most club players and people that may not be, you know, training 20 hours a week, I would say the straighter you can have your arms, the easier it is for most people to get consistent contact points. The reason being is you can turn your hips and your shoulders will turn with your hips. If your arms are straight, everything turns as a unit. So your upper body and your hips all turn together. And then when you accelerate, you accelerate the racket through contact and you try to straighten out your follow through as long as you can. Those are the easiest, simplest ways to hit the tennis ball on a consistent basis. Once you can do that, then you have the option to add more, more spin. You have the option to hit you know, with a different type of ball flight. But again, there isn't one optimum way to hit a two-handed backhand, it's actually more complicated than the forehand because of the multiple grips. And you've got two hands that can, one can be bent, one can be straight. Your left hand can be bent, your right can be straight, vice versa. So it's actually, there's more complexity to the two-hander than the one if you go into the details. And we spend a lot of time with players trying to determine it because it also has a lot to do with eye dominance as well based on if they're left eye or right eye dominant. Because if you're right eye dominant, you aren't going to turn and rotate as much um, because you want to keep your right eye where the ball's coming. So you're going to not turn as as much and your contact point's going to be more out in front typically. If you're left eye dominant, you turn more normally and your contact point's a little bit further back, closer to your hip, because that's where your comfort zone is more. So again, went into some detail there. I don't think most people need to go into that much detail, but it's important to recognize that to simplify life for most people, you know, let your hips dictate the stroke, keep your arms nice and straight, but relaxed, meaning don't be super stiff with it, but keep your arms straight, hit through the ball and pass the ball. Too many people break off their backhand too early before they fully extend and get full extension. Uh, and that's really the easiest way for most people to think about it. I know I talked in a lot of different details there, but the goal is when you're actually playing to simplify as much as you can. Fascinating. I'm going to have to rewind and uh, you know think about that more myself. And I, I do need to do that um, eye dominance test to, uh, to get some more insight. That, that's really cool. Um, we have a lot of questions, Mark. This is great to see. Uh, this is a very interesting, very technical one, it sounds like. From Thomas, I would like to know a technical point about the serve. What is the best front foot angle to have from zero parallel to the sideline to 90 degrees parallel to the serve line? Okay, so the great question. Question regarding the front foot and how um, much movement should you have? So if I understand your scale, you're using zero is parallel to the sideline. So that would be like if, you're t- if these are my toes, they'd be pointing forward to the net um, or 90 degrees. So your foot would either be like this or your foot would be like this. So if I – reversed how you were trying to think of it just go with me i'm going to use that scale so this is going to be you know zero toes pointing forward to the net and sideways toes pointed to the side fence um so from that perspective you know you've got all all that range is acceptable so there isn't an optimal position there it has a lot to do with hip range of motion if you've got great hip range of motion you can do any of it because you have the range, you can go through it. If you've got very restrictive hips, the the we may even shift it further than that, where our heel of our foot is actually closer to the baseline and our toes are slightly pointing towards the side. Back. You're actually on a bit of an angle. That allows your hips to rotate. Honestly, I don't usually adjust that very much with players. That's more style. You see what they do now. And then if there's some major physical limitation, that's when we'll adjust that. But again, 
you've got players that have be, had great serves and made millions of dollars playing this game, serving great with variations in foot position. So that tells us usually it's got a lot more to do with style. And you have to account for what swing do they have as well. Are they pinpoint or platform when they bring their feet up? Do they have a long take back or a shorter take back? Because that'll dictate a little bit as well where you would have their foot position. So I know you may want it a simple answer. This is better than that. But most of my answers are that's more a stylistic issue and you have to take into account other factors in the motion. A true fundamental, there are yeses and nos or black and whites in foot position. You have some variability there based on limb length, based on serve technique, the rest of the motion, and also based on how tight the foot and ankle is, as well as how tight the hip is, especially internal rotation of the hip. Awesome. Thank you for that, uh, Mark. So we have a question from Live In Tennis. Which serve is best, Dr. Kovacs, in your view? <laughs> Slice, flat, or kick? Can yeah, you that's more? a great question. Which serve is best, slice wide or kick? Uh, they're all vitally important. If you've only got two of the three, you're not going to be an optimum server. It's just the case because, you know, the, the more options you have, the better you're going to be uh, from a serving perspective. But in general, the safest serve that can do the most damage on a regular basis is the slice serve. Reason being is margin for error is usually pretty high. You can go T, you can go body, you can go wide, and you can hit all three serves. Um, and you've got the ability to add more slice or less slice depending on what you're trying to hit. So if you had to you know, put me on the spot, and I've actually never been asked that question in that way, is if you could only have one serve, which would you take? That's I, I reworded your question a little bit. Um, so I would say if you had to, I would go with slice uh, for those reasons. Flat serve is great for the aces, uh, and you want that. The fastball, kind of the baseball example. The problem is your margin for error is always a lot less. Um, you can't hit every serve. We, uh, every part of the box easily with a flat serve. And then the kick serve, the third one, has a lot of advantages, but it also has some limitations just like the flat serve in different ways. You can't hit to every point on in the service box. Once a returner is aware of the serve that you're hitting, they can usually start adjusting their positioning and start getting comfortable with it. So if you only had a kick serve, uh, it actually becomes relatively easy to return over time. So that's why I would put slice as the priority and the most versatile, uh, but the other two are vital and they make you a much better server if you can serve all three. Yeah, really great point, Mark. You know, for a while I was, you know, under the impression myself that, you know, if we had to pick one, it would be the, you know, kick or topspin because it's, uh, you know, the net clearance and so forth. But, um, you know, lately talking to you and, and some other individuals, you know, uh, the slice can be devastating and you can, you know, adjust this so that it, you know, there's net clearance. Because also in my mind, I was always thinking, oh, you know, this one has much lower net clearance, but I guess that, you know, you can vary, uh, you know, how you hit it. So um, that that's really great, uh, Mark. Appreciate that. So we have one from, and we have a lot, uh, from, from uh, Saleh. I, I apologize if I'm pronouncing it wrong, Saleh, but um, what do you think about teaching slice at the end or from the start with juniors? Oh, I guess that's the question. So would that be a good uh, serve to teach from the start with juniors then? I imagine so. Yeah, so the way I usually recommend teaching juniors is a topspin serve, not a kick serve, but a topspin serve on day one which is tr the reason that is the best service because you mentioned net clearance. From day one with a young junior, you want to get them to get this ball in, positive reinforcement on day one, and they can do that with a re relatively traditional continental or close to continental grip. It's not a kick serve. The ball doesn't bounce for a right hand or left to right. It actually just spins over and there's not usually much spin when they're a junior. So, but that's usually how I start. And because you can then get them the right grip from day one. If you don't start, if you try to do the flat serve on day one, they usually go to a forehand grip and then it becomes hard to change them over time. So you have to be careful with that. And then once they get proficient in that serve, 
then slowly bring in the, the slice serve. But as we know, serve for junior early in their learning, you know, development journey is challenging and they'll usually end up hitting the ball into the side fence a lot because they over-exaggerate the slice. Only about a four to seven degree angle between a flat serve and a slice serve at contact. So when most of us teach the slice, we over-exaggerate the racket path and we say the racket's kind of coming through on the side like this and we demonstrate carving around the ball and all those things that we do as coaches a lot of the time to try to cue an athlete, which is actually scientifically incorrect, but it's a coaching cue. So we have to be careful because most young kids will look at that and take it literally and actually literally come around the side of the ball and the ball goes straight into the side fence. So you have to be careful with over-teaching the slice too early unless you've got certain players that are understanding what we're talking about with, with the slice. So topspin is the first one because margin for error is a lot better. You can get the ball in easily and you can use the right grips from day one. And then over time, you bring in the slice serve and, and the flat serve. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate that. Uh, so another um, uh, foot alignment question, Thomas. I see almost all pro players having the front foot parallel to the serve line. Nadal is about 45 degrees. So why is it so? Yeah, that's interesting that we're getting questions on such a uh, intricate topic <laughs> because it there are stylistic differences with the foot position. So I would say it's it's interesting to look at, but it's not a driving force in the service motion because once they get to load stage three of the serve, you know that's where it's most important. And a lot of them shift their feet from where they actually start when they're bouncing the ball and in their ready position to actually where they get to load three. So the biggest thing is we want to get their hips rotated back and down and whatever makes that possible and easier for the athlete is what we usually go with. So normally you'll start at somewhat parallel or to the 45, uh, and then you will rotate them back. If you understand where the history of teaching the serve came from, it was a lot on grass courts, and it was back in an era where the back foot, could, uh, the front foot couldn't come off the ground. So you had a very different serve starting position uh, back in the 60s and early 70s and earlier. Uh, and a lot of the coaches from that played in that era taught the serve in the 80s and 90s the way they were taught. So you had this transfer effect of knowledge that was based on an antiquated technique. And the, the only reason it was antiquated was because the rules changed. Um, so that's why, you know, you would see some of these different foot positions and a lot of it had to do with lining up where your body would be because you couldn't jump at that point. Now that you can jump and you can load and you can transfer energy more efficiently up and out into the court, uh, it takes away a little bit of that starting position being as vital. Thank you, Mark. I uh, appreciate that. Let's see. We've got a bunch more questions. Interesting one. So from uh, Tomas or Thomas, what are some visual cues that coaches can use to determine whether or not a player is using their kinetic chain effectively, quote, in quotation, in sync on ground strokes? Yeah, it's a great question and really important one as well, because on the ground strokes, just like the serve, the lower body dictates the motion. The upper body is a conduit. It transfers whatever energy you're able to produce from the ground up through your core and out into the ball. So you want to make sure that you're loading the hips really well. And that's the easiest way to add power and spin very quickly. And so what do we focus on there? You focus on the outside leg. So if you're a right-handed forehand, your right leg is your, your drive leg, the important leg. You want to make sure that you load that hip rotate into the hip. So a lot of times when we say load the hip, a lot of people will just push weight down into it. That's half of it. The other half is you've got to rotate around your axis. So you've got to get your hips turning. If you've got really stiff hips, it's hard to do that. So a lot of people don't. They'll do what's called swaying where they'll shift back into their hip, but they won't rotate. And that's where we get some inconsistent swings and inconsistent contact points. So you want to rotate into their back hip. And a lot of people will say shoulder turn. Shoulder, the driver is the hip turn. So you want to actually say hip turn, which will turn your shoulders. So that's the important part. That's loading. That's stage three of the stroke, which is getting set up, getting loaded, 
storing all your energy in that lower body. And then the release from there is where everything good should happen from whatever you've stored. Whatever you've been able to store into that point then has to release out into the ball. And you have to make sure that you extend through contact. Even if you're going to hit with heavy topspin, say, you know, Rafael Nadal hits with great topspin, but he fully extends his arm. He's actually able to hit through his contact zone. um, And he just does it so quickly that it happens, you know, so rapidly and so violently in a good way that he's able to get so many RPMs on the ball. So from a sinking standpoint, always think lower body first. Make sure we get that outside leg loaded, rotated in, and that's our stored position. And then we accelerate out of there uh, and, you know, extend through target. And that's the consistent way. It doesn't matter what grip you have, what swing path you have. That's the general concept. Then depending on the grips and swing paths, then it does change where your contact points end up being. Your contact point may be closer to your hip if you've got more extreme grip. If you've got a more traditional grip, eastern forehand, something like that, you're going to have a contact point a little further out in front, a little further away from you, things like that. So the grip and swing path do make a big difference in contact point, but the general big picture concepts of what how to sink the kinetic chain is lower body first, outside leg, load and rotate around, and then accelerate through target. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Awesome, uh, Mark. So I'm going to ask a, a selfish question uh, because it's from myself, but <laughs> I saw a video and I actually brought this up in Jeff's session, uh, I think a couple of days ago, um, or maybe it was yesterday. But so I saw a video which said that players should not push off of their back uh, foot or their back leg on the serve. And I thought that was very interesting, you know, because I, I have seen obviously, you know, the importance of loading the back leg. And so um, I, I, I can see how that can be confusing for some individuals. And I've gotten emails about that too. So I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on, you know, the instruction to not push off on your back leg when you're serving. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure what you're referring to, but um, I'd have to understand the context because okay. all the data from every biomechanics lab in the world of all the great servers is the same. And the back leg load is the priority loaded leg. You do shift into the front leg. So maybe that's what it was referring to. It's like everything else. You go from one position and you shift weight into another position. That's what, you know, movement is. So you have to go from the back leg, usually around 60%. People look for a percentage at stage three of the load. That's the driver. You push up through the back leg. And as you're starting to come out of the back leg, you start shifting weight into the front leg. And then you, you do come off the front leg. I mean, there is weight shift in the front leg, but the driver and the priority is always the back leg. So that data is very consistent. It's been... You know, 40 years of biomechanical research and that's been shown, you know, in every biomechanics lab in the world on every great server. So there's no really uh, discussion about that among um, anyone I've spoken to. So maybe, maybe I'm, or maybe I'm not exactly sure what they were referring to. If you've got more info on it, you know, it'd be helpful to understand it better. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, it might, you know, it might be tough to describe now other than I'm, you know, follow up to that is then, you know, at the stage where you're actually pushing off from the ground, um, I mean, what percentage roughly is usually like, should the distribution be between front and back, back? Yeah, so usually 60, 40 is the, is the average that we see sometimes as much as 70 off the back. 
Um, and then as yeah. you're starting to come out of the back leg, you, you, your weight is starting to shift into the front. So if you watch every good server, they don't go straight up. You know, they're going up and out into the court. So if you're going up and out into the court, your weight is shifting. So that's where it goes from 60 to 70% back leg, you know, into the front leg. And that shifts between stage three to stage five of the serve. Uh, so maybe that's what they meant was just, Hey, at some point your front legs are engaged, which it is, but if you push off the front leg and that's your drive leg, then you're not going to load the back leg. And we see that is they wait into the front leg early during stage three. And then, then they just can't generate any power off their back leg. They can't rotate the right way and they open up too early. And that's, that's the number one issue with, most poor servers is they shift their weight into their front leg too early. So that's why we never recommend any mention of front leg load because you don't want to get that in the mindset of any server because it's going to, they're going to overdo it. Yeah. hundred percent. Thank you for the, for that, Mark. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, John here wants to pay you money. He said, if I wanted to pay you to analyze a certain pros serve, can you do that with match video that's online? Is that something that you, that you do Mark? Yeah, I mean, we do. We have a quite in-depth biomechanical analysis um, program that we do with our pro players and our elite players. Um, we'll do it occasionally with a club player. If it's through a referral, usually their coach will contact us. Um, so that is something we definitely do. So they can check out our website, kovacsinstitute.com. You can kind of see some of the stuff we do. Um, happy to do a pro for you if, if, if you've got interest. That's, that's not a problem. We've got quite a few free ones around as well on our academy site at kovacsacademy.com where we'll talk about different pros, different servers, different ground strokes, different things, and, and talk through that. So um, it, it, it's not something we typically promote or, or discuss, but if there's, if there's a real interest, just shoot us an email at, at our website and you know we should be able to help you out. Cool. Awesome. And yeah, definitely visit uh, kovacsinstitute.com and kovacsacademy.com uh, for more great uh, tennis content from Mark uh, and the team. So um, let's see. We've got uh, – so Susan is asking a very general question. Um, I wish we had more context, but I struggle with my serve. Any tips uh, to help? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a bit broad for me to be able to give you an easy answer, but I would say find a really qualified uh, coach in your area um, who can help you because that's usually the best solution um, is to get some good quality coaching. Now with online options as well, you may be, you know, you can do things virtually as well. So there's definitely some things there. Just the first thing is understand your serve. If you go to our website, there's a free course there that we provide. It's called analyzing the serve. That's what we Tell, tell most people to do. Um, go through it. It goes through the eight stages of the serve. It allows you to analyze um, a pro serve, but also then you can use those same checkpoints and analyze your own serve and see where you think you may be missing some some components. And then it's about okay, let's work on it. Let's let's try to get better at it. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Uh, live in tennis. Hmm. Women forehand backswing is different from the men's forehand backswing question mark. So I guess any general comments about the differences between the backswings? Yeah. So I think a lot of this discussion, sometimes people call it the ATP versus the WTA forehand, which I really hate the term because there's, there's examples on both tours of the reverse. So if you have examples of people that aren't doing it, then it's not then it's not a fundamental, it's a stylistic thing. Um, and it's not a gender issue either. I've worked with tons of female players that, the for the folks that aren't that familiar, the big debate is should the racket head be on the same side of the body as your backswing or should it break the plane? Should it go behind you? So if you were taking a video of the player from behind, you would see the racket on the left side of the body if you're looking at it from behind, if they're breaking the plane, if they're not breaking the plane, the racket stays on the same side of the body. And I'm not sure why this became a topic of discussion even. Um, it's really interesting. No really good coach that I speak to that works with high-level players really has this discussion. Everyone knows it has to do with grips and swing paths, uh, and that's it. You change the grip, you change the swing path, you'll change the racket position. It's got nothing to do with gender. 
Um, and it's a shame that that's the discussion and that's where the discussion went. Um, you've got plenty of great female pros that break the plane and hit unbelievable forehands. Simona Halep, Madison Keys, Sloane Stevens, uh, tons of others. And you've got Jenny Brady who doesn't. Um, so it's not an issue necessarily. It's got a lot to do with what type of shots are you trying to hit? What grips do you use? Um, where are you loading? Things like that. So um, it's a good question because it does get discussed a lot, but I think it gets misinterpreted a ton as well. Um, and it has has a, a lot more to do with because there's different types of forehands. Uh, there's flatter forehands. There's people that have excessive spin on the forehand, things like that, and they can both be successful. That's the beauty of tennis. You can have different styles uh, of forehands, but you've got to understand your swing paths and you've got to understand your contact points to be successful with it. Yeah, 100%. I'm, for some reason, I thought of Medvedev, too. I mean, he has a pretty mm -hmm. big backswing, if I remember right. Uh, let's what? see. Yeah, and, and uh, Tom, just I think more of a comment. Hi, Mark. I heard you speak 10 to 15 years ago at a hospital for special surgery for ITPA, and he continues to study and learn and help us. Tom's a medicine orthopedist and played D3, so mm -hmm. hey, Tom. All right, cool. Let's see what else. Um, oh, I think we touched upon this already, um, but I guess maybe just to reiterate. So, so the question is: Explain the back leg while serving, which you you did, Mark. But uh, so let's say, what phase does the the weight uh, shift from the back leg to the front leg? Then, yeah. So it's pretty easy. We have eight stages to the serve. Uh, you've got the start, you've got the ball release, and then you've got loading. And loading is lower body loading. That's that's the point where you're storing the most amount of energy in the lower body. Um, and that's that, that point in the motion just before you start going up. So if you think about it from a uh, leg loading position, your weight is going down, 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 down until a certain point, and then it starts going up into the jump. So it's the last point that you go down uh, is the stage three. And then you start going up. Stage three to stage four is go from that last point all the way up to where you're on your tippy toes. So you've unloaded your entire leg. So think of it from a jumping standpoint. It's the bottom of the jump to the top of the jump. It's the way to think of it. Stage three is really where you have to be optimized from your load. And that's, that's where the back leg is so important. If you look at every great server from Serena Williams to John Isner to Jenny Brady to, to Pete Sampras to Goran Ivanisevic um, to Boris Beckham, they all look the same. They all have different stances. They all have different style. But their loading at stage three is nearly identical. And that's, that's the fundamentals of the serve. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Mark, can you uh, still hear, uh, see and hear me right now? Yeah, I can. Okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, computer's a little weird. So uh, let's see. Um, can you use the slice? Yeah, well, what are your thoughts on using the slice serve for the second serve? Yeah, so good question about the thoughts on using the slice serve for the second serve. Uh, it has a lot to do with what grip do you use and what your body position is. If you've got good body mechanics and you're loading from the right position, you can definitely hit it. The biggest recommendation on the second serve is depending on your level, what's going to provide you with the most consistent second serve. And for many people, the slice serve is the most consistent. Uh, it limits you a little bit because, you know, your opponent over time is going to realize that's the only serve you hit and they're going to adjust. But there's nothing wrong for most club players with hitting a slice serve as the second serve. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of good players that, you know, only hit a slice serve, even at the pro level, um, but it limits them. So that's the biggest answer to that question. If you can hit a good kick serve, it adds more variety to your game. But if you're at a certain level, you may be comfortable and happy with just hitting a slice serve. Excellent. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I had to switch my monitor here. Could you share some light on the triple extension, the importance of uh, ankle, knee, hip, how it affects stroke production? 
Yeah, so triple extension for the folks that aren't familiar, that's a term that's come predominantly from jumping uh, for bi from biomechanics, human movement research, and that's triple extension of three joints. It's the ankle, it's the knee, and the hip. And when you jump, you triple extend or you extend those three joints. So that's what we're talking about when you hear the term triple extension. You see it in weightlifting a lot and different things like that. So of it. Um, is like in any movement, it's v very valuable to have more range than less range. The more range you have in those three joints from a functional range standpoint uh, allows you to load through a greater range of motion and allows you to accelerate through a greater range of motion. So for most people, they're stiff and, you know, it doesn't matter whether they're young or old. Most people are stiff and they're sti every generation is getting stiffer due to lifestyle. Um, you definitely want to make sure that you have good range of motion through areas. We've got to remember, though, that the knee joint itself doesn't want to have range. You want to have stability around the knee joint. Um, you know, the hip, we have to, you know, have some range. We have to be able to move that effectively. The ankle, we, we want to, depending on what we're trying to do, we have to have stability there but we have to also have range around the calf and things like that. So it's a little more complicated than just talking ankle, knee, and hip. It's about certain areas need to be stable. Other areas need to have mobility, uh, but they all impact what you can do with your ground strokes because if you're not loading effectively through there, you're going to change your body mechanics to make contact with the ball. Good thing about tennis players is we always want to hit the ball. So we're going to find a way to make contact with the ball, even if it's not the most efficient way possible. And over time, that can either result in poor mechanics, which gives us less power and spin, but we still make contact, or we try to maintain power and spin using the wrong muscle groups and the wrong sequencing, and that leads to injury. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate that. So got a question from Aaron, uh, and apologies if we don't get to all the questions. We have a lot. Um, Aaron uh, says, as a strength coach slash CTPS, nice, uh, I've stayed away from teaching tennis athletes any clean variation and use a dumbbell snatch or trap bar jumps instead. It's a controversial topic. What are your thoughts, Mark? Yeah, it's a great question, Aaron. And for folks that aren't familiar, clean variations are um, variations on Olympic lifting movements uh, in the weight room, usually with a, a with a barbell. Um, so, historically, strength coaches were either power lifters or Olympic lifters back seventies, eighties, and nineties. And so, the vast majority of weightlifting technique has been passed through that community. And as a result, most people learn those movements. The challenge is with tennis players is there's nothing wrong with those movements. I, I will teach that to every junior player at a very young age so they learn the right mechanics. The challenge is when they start getting to puberty and past puberty and they've never done these movements, it puts extra strain on the wrist, especially for a lot of these athletes, sometimes the lower back if they don't know how to do the technique correctly. And so the challenge is how much time do you want to spend on it and does it increase the risk predominantly of wrist issues. That's the biggest concern in the tennis athletes is the wrist issues with catching a clean. Um, so a hand clean or a power clean uh, or even a cleaning jerk is are all variations of these movements we're talking about. And the hard part with it is your wrists end up going into this position here. So if you have a look here, they, they have to get down into that position. And most tennis players are very stiff already through the wrist. And that's an adaptation in a positive way to protect the wrist from how many strokes they hit. Um, and if we start loading this position, it can it can really cause uh, discomfort and potential TFCC tears and other things over time. Um, so it's a risk reward issue. And as I always say, there's never a bad exercise. It's wrongly applied to the wrong person with the wrong volume at the wrong intensity at the wrong time of year um, and without the right technique. So that, is a lot of words, but it's basically saying, don't blame the exercise, blame the person teaching it at the wrong time for the wrong athlete. So it's a great question for most athletes that are older past puberty that have never done these movements before. I won't start them on that. Um, pretty much never. 
because they've so developed in their tennis playing, and this is high-level tennis players we're talking about, will usually do exactly like you're doing. You know, you'll do dumbbell variations. You'll do various jumps that'll stimulate the triple extension. Uh, you'll do front squat variations without the cat clean position. You'll do a crossover or we'll use certain bars that will protect the wrist better. So it's it shouldn't be controversial from a standpoint of what are you trying to accomplish? You're trying to get more power out of your athletes. You're trying to get your athletes stronger. There's a hundred different. My goal would be to pick ones that are not going to increase the risk to the athlete, um, especially if you don't see your athletes very often. If you train your athletes every day and you can spend a good hour or two hours with them and work through technique, that's a different discussion. But most of the time, you don't get that amount of time to work with your athletes. So hopefully that answers the question. It's not a yes or no, but it's a leaning more often than not that you're going to shy away from those type of movements that could potentially put the wrist is the biggest one um, at, at greater risk because you can't lift as much weight either. If your goal is to develop power, I'd rather lift them heavy enough with dumbbells, with trap bars, with bungees, with different things that will get that same triple extension ability um, and work them harder and faster and get quicker improvements than spending weeks and months trying to teach technique with a lighter weight. Thanks, Mark. Uh, great question, Aaron. Good to see you on here and appreciate the information. So top spin or top 999 spin. Let me put the question on here. On the serve after contact, does pronation happen by externally rotating the forearm or by externally rotating the shoulder? Mark, I know you have some good thoughts on pronation. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great, great question. Uh, the important part about pronation is pronation has come through the coaching community from the early 70s, actually, was the first um, known uh, use of that term in the coaching world. Uh, and that was before a lot of high-speed video and different things and a lot of before a lot of the biomechanics studies in the early late 70s, early 80s were the first real biomechanics studies that were done, uh, that were done well in, in labs with the right equipment. And then we started to better understand the biomechanics of the body and what caused it. So for the folks that are uh, watching, Forearm pronation is what we're talking about when we say pronation. It's quite a small movement. So from this perspective here, it goes from here to there. You know, that, that's about all we're talking about. So it's not very much. Um, what most people see when someone serves is you see what we call long axis rotation, which is the entire arm. And this is a term that Bruce Elliott, Dr. Bruce Elliott from Australia, uh, probably the best tennis biomechanist, um, you know, he's been studying this stuff for nearly 40 years. Uh, and what he termed was that term long axis rotation. It's in baseball, it's in cricket, it's in pretty much any overhead athlete. You see the same thing. And it's internal shoulder rotation. So from here, you internally rotate your shoulder and then you pronate. And that allows you to get that big position that we see tennis players have where the string side of the racket that makes contact with the ball actually points to the right side fence for a right-hander. So your question is um, what causes what? Um, and again, it goes down the chain. So it's actually not – you use the term externally rotate the shoulder. It's actually internal rotation of the shoulder and then forearm pronation. So they're the two main movements after contact that we see. Before contact, we actually see the reverse. We, f we see forearm supination, um, which is what's happening at stage four and five, you know, and then we go into supination first, which is back here, and then we come out of it. So it's a great question. Um, don't overthink it, though, because if you're, you should never have to teach contact on. Uh, if you do everything right with the service motion – Contact and, and post-contact is a natural occurring body movement. If you're trying to teach anything after that, you're potentially increasing your risk of injury on your athlete. I've seen people that say, hey, I want you to try to do this. I want you to finish like this and hold that position. That's a really good way to try to injure someone because the body goes through that motion naturally and then they finish. They don't hold it there. So be careful about how much you're trying to coach or change something after contact. If you think you need to change something after contact, 
that means that you're not doing something correctly earlier in the motion. So you have to go back and figure out what the cause of that is, fix it earlier in the motion. Gotcha. Thanks a lot, Mark. Mark, I did want to, just want to do a time check. Do you have um, a heart stop at four? Just want to make sure. Yeah, i got a few more minutes. We can probably go another 10 minutes. Okay, perfect. That's that's great. Thank you for that. Let's see. We have so many questions. Oh, what are two good stretches to use after each match? Yeah, really, really good question. There's more than two, obviously, but if you say, let's say, what are your two favorites? You know, you definitely want to do one for your hips because um, your hips tighten up a lot. So we have this 90-90 stretch that we, we do. Uh, if you go to Kovacs Academy, type in hip stretches. There's a bunch of stuff on there. Um, and that's a really, really good one. So definitely take care of your hips. And then uh, upper body, internal rotation of the shoulder. There's a, a number of different things we can do there. You can go do your cross-body stretch. You can do a variation of a standing sleeper stretch. You can do a true sleeper stretch where you're on your side. Um, again, all you're trying to do is provide you're not trying to increase range of motion after a match what you're trying to do is reduce the deficit that you've created because of the match and we know when we study range of motion especially in the upper body we see a seven to ten degrees reduction in internal shoulder rotation range of motion after a three-set tennis match um, and that happens after every match. It slowly comes back uh, after the next 24 hours, but over weeks and months, that deficit over time starts to be um, consistent and you start losing that range of motion. And we see a 5 sometimes 10% decrease in shoulder range of motion from year to year in competitive tennis players. Uh, and then you have all sorts of other issues that come about. You change in posture, uh, internal shoulder um, pain, shoulder impingement, and potentially if it goes on for too long, you may get rotator cuff tears, labral tears, things like that. All right. I hope you really enjoyed this episode with special guest, Dr. Mark Kovacs. Mark, thanks a lot for your time as always. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you and hope to get you on again soon. Uh, whether it be on the podcast or live streams or anything else. Uh, and I definitely highly recommend that you check out kovacsacademy.com. That's K-O-V-A-C-S-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y.com. <laughs> that was harder to spell than I thought. But um, yeah, kovacsacademy.com for a lot of great content from Mark and the team over there. And if you enjoyed this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. You can do that very easily and quickly by just clicking the subscribe button on your podcast app of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the like. Uh, I'd also want to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of the show, pretty much every show. And this one is by Captain Jack Sparrow. What a great movie. I was actually, well, you know, he's obviously an actor. Um, but um, the quote is, the problem is not the problem. The problem is your attitude about the problem. Love this quote. Uh, you know, a lot of things just really stem from the mind as far as, you know, how you can deal with things, how you look at things. And uh, just because there is a problem, I mean, you can look at it from a negative uh, standpoint or from a positive standpoint about, you know, trying to find a solution, uh, which will be a much better uh, outcome than just complaining about it. All right. Enough preaching. Uh, I really appreciate you all uh, listening to this episode and to the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. If you found uh, something useful during the episode, then let me know um, through a review or just email me at mirban at tennisfiles.com. That's M-E-H-R-B-A-N at tennisfiles.com. And I look forward to seeing you or having you listen to the next podcast episode. With that, uh, be well, stay safe, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.